Uh, Holy Spirit, illumine for us this word that the message of the gospel may come to us in power. Amen. Okay. Um, There's been a lot of yelling these days, (laughs) I think, uh, in regard to politics, uh, justice, um, protocols, mass, no mass. It just seems like there's lots and lots of yelling. I've noticed that in particular with social media, um, I've been slowly backing away. Um, I hadn't really thought about it um, until this morning, actually, that over the last couple months, I have found myself uh, shutting down uh, Facebook instead of just having it always on to check in a browser. Um, I pulled it off the phone. Uh, I've shut off notifications, and I I feel myself just... Uh, slowly uh, uh, backing away. I I remember a a Thanksgiving dinner years ago um, at my uh, grandparents down in Long Island, New York, and uh, my grandfather had a, he had a radio advertisement um, about buying American cars, um, and it wasn't the nicest ad. I don't think it wasn't. This was years ago. And I had these cousins that were like in middle school and freshman and high school. And so we're having this Thanksgiving meal and we start talking about uh, some social issues going on in the world. And of course, these, you know, this one in junior high and this other, my cousin in high school, they know everything, right? I mean, we don't know anything. All the adults, um, and uh, they knew everything, and it just was, uh, it, it was a big argument, <laughs> except for myself and my brother and my mother. Uh, I don't know if my, my dad was in it, but I noticed my mom, it was funny because uh, about after 20 minutes of this, her seat was pushed way back from the table. <laughs> just unconsciously, she didn't really realize she was backing up, but she kept backing up away. And so by the time we started eating, she was backed away from the table. I feel like I've been doing that with some uh, online, some social media sort of thing. Um, But uh, there's a lot of yelling these days. And we have another story, yet another story, where I was telling the the crew that set up before we prayed, before the service, that at this point in Acts, we're seeing things, in the book of Acts, we're seeing things that, very, that look very similar. Paul goes into a city, there's a riot, he's saved, and there's a speech, right? And um, this morning is no different. We're, we're coming into the end of uh, Acts chapter 21 and into Acts chapter 22. Paul is going back to Jerusalem. And uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about how people tried to talk him out of it. Um, He went anyway, and there's a number of things that happen. And one of the things that we see, uh, rather than looking at what happens, we're going to look at how Paul deals with all the conflict there. Because what he does is very different than what I would expect from him. Paul always seemed like a hot-tempered person to me. Um, But his approach in this situation is revealing about what it means to follow Jesus. And I think that it's very timely for us to uh, read and learn from in this, uh, in this day and age that we're living. Um, and so Luke is, one of the things that Luke is trying to do on a theological level is trying to draw a connection 
between Paul's experience and Jesus' experience. Okay, so Paul's going to get arrested in Jerusalem just like Jesus did. He's going to be led off in chains just like Jesus did. Tradition has it that he, uh, he loses his life because of his faith just like Jesus did. Uh, although it doesn't happen in the book of Acts, that's what church tradition holds. And um, we're left at the end of the book, I'm just going to give you a clue, um, that he ends up you know, arrested in Rome. Right? And by the way, at the end of Titanic, the ship sinks. I'm just letting you know now. I know I ruined the movie. But that's how the book of Acts ends with Paul in chains. And so Luke, on one level, is trying to show us that here we have a disciple, an apostle, uh, someone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, and he actually looks a lot like Jesus in the Gospels. And um, this is really important for us to understand because it really flies in the face of what we would call sort of an American approach to Christianity. And a lot of our American approach to Christianity looks a lot like the American dream. It looks a lot like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But Jesus ends up arrested. Jesus suffers. And he does this on behalf of others. It's what we need. It's what the world needs. And Paul is doing the same thing. And so this kind of approach is something that we need to learn. If we are going to be followers of Christ, then we need to see what Paul is doing, see what Jesus is doing, and learn from it. And it's going to fly in the face of, you know, what we feel like in our culture, what we feel like we should do or how we should respond to people. And so um, here's the one thing I, I want us to understand is that um, there's a reason Paul is able to do what we see this morning. There's, an, there's a reason that Jesus is able to do what he is able to do, this sort of a service, um, this suffering on the behalf of others. And it's because his Paul is so secure in the love of Christ and the love of Jesus that he is able to go into these hostile environments and see what people need and provide it. I don't think he's able to do that without that secure foundation of the love of God. And certainly Jesus is not able to do that without the secure foundation of the love of God. Okay, so we're going to look into this. There's going to be a lot of uh, reading this morning. And we're going to start with Acts uh, 21, verse 15. And it says, After this, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. Some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home of uh, Mason. Boy, it's a hard name to pronounce, Mason. A man originally from Cyprus and one of the early believers. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. So here's a picture of Paul getting into town, and he finds these other disciples. And there's almost this picture of a very warm reception. In a I can imagine a home with some a meal and trying to catch up on what Paul has been doing. Um, it says, The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church. They were present. All the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. After greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, through his ministry. So, we have two groups here. The first night is with these believers, and you get this warm reception. And the next one is with the, the, the church leaders in Jerusalem, and it's sort of like a debrief. Okay, So it's a kind of a different feel with this meeting. 
And it's interesting how things progress, because it says, after hearing this, they praised God, and they said, you know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed, and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. So now James is talking about Christians who happen to be Jewish, they're they're, uh, Jewish Christians, and how they take the law and their culture and their approach to religion very seriously, and all the... um, uh, the rituals that they grew up with as Jewish people um, are now being um, used in their Christian worship as well. Because, again, this is a Messianic Jewish movement, right? <clears throat> but the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the laws of Moses. Now, this is not what Paul's teaching, all right, so this is not the first time, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna use this term, right? Here's fake news. Fake news. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow the Jewish customs. Now Paul teaches this to non-Jewish people. He does not. This is wrong. He's not teaching this to Jewish people. He's teaching it to non-Jewish people. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So there's a different tone here. He meets with the church leadership, and all of a sudden they're really concerned about how things look. They're concerned about optics. They try to want they want to manage people's uh, vision and understanding of what they're doing. They're trying to uh, manage people's understanding of what's going on. Um, I have to admit this isn't a great. This doesn't give me warm fuzzies about the church in Jerusalem. The way their approach to this. And so they come up with this plan and says, here's what we want you to do. We have four men who have completed their vow. This might be a, like a Nazarite vow, um, people vowing to uh, become priests or, or whatever. Um, uh, they go with them to the temple, uh, go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, paying for them to have their heads ritually shaved. Then everyone will know that the rumors are all false, and that you yourself observe Jewish laws. So they come up with a plan to make everything look good. To make everything look good. And it's interesting how Paul approaches this. Because first of all, this is fake. It's not, it's, it's not true. But it says in verse 26, Paul went to the temple the next day with the other men. They had already started the purification ritual, so he publicly announced the date when their vows would end and sacrifices would be offered for each of them. The seven days were almost ended when some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple and roused a mob against him. They grabbed him, yelling, Men of Israel, help us. This man who preaches among our people everywhere and tells people to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple. He even defiles a holy place by bringing Gentiles in. For earlier that day, they had seen him in the city with Trophimus. We all know Trophimus, right? Yeah, I know. The horror, right? A Gentile from Ephesus. And they assumed Paul had taken him into the temple. So more fake news. 
The whole city was rocked by these accusations, and a great riot followed. Paul was grabbed and dragged out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed behind him. As they were trying to uh, kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately called out of his out his soldiers and officers and ran down among the crowd. When the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating up on Paul. The commander arrested him and ordered him bound with two chains. He asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. Some shouted one thing, others another. Since he couldn't find out the truth and all the uproar and confusion, he ordered that Paul be taken to the fortress. As Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent, the soldiers had to lift him up on their, soldier, on their shoulders to protect him. And the crowd behind uh, shouted, kill him, kill him, kill him. Not a good day for Paul, but we've seen this before with him. But I just wanted to point out that he comes into town. He's been doing all this work. He's been doing ministry. He has this warm you know, reception from some people in town. The next day, he goes to meet with the church leadership, and they're like, here's what we want you to do. We want to manage all the optics here. We want, to, we want everything to look good. Now, I don't think that's what we see, Paul, and he just goes along with it. He just says, okay, well, let's, let's try this out. Let's go, let's go along with it. He seems to have no problem. And, you know, quite honestly, this is not the approach that I would take. <laughs> I would say, first of all, I was blinded miraculously by this person. I heard the voice of Jesus. He gave me something to do. I don't really care what they think. Yeah, see? <laughs> that's the way we would react. Because we live in a land that's really concerned about our individual rights, right? <laughs> but Paul has this approach uh, that I need to learn a lot from, an approach that's a bit more humble, an approach that looks at the others and says, all right, I'm going to go along with it. I'm going to, if that's what you want me to do, I'll go along with it. If that will help, I'll go along with it. I, it makes me mad. I'm going to move on because it makes me mad just thinking about this situation. Okay. So he's with the tribune now. We're going to come back to them in a second, but we do have a short passage. This first time he's with them. As Paul was about to be taken inside, he said to the commander, may I have a word with you? And the commander says, oh my goodness, you speak Greek. The commander said, surprised, aren't you the Egyptian who led a rebellion some time ago and took 4,000 members of the assassins out into the desert? What? <laughs> Fake news. No, <laughs> Paul replied. I'm a Jew and a citizen of Tarsus in Cilicia, which is an important city, by the way. Please let me talk to these people. And so here we have, we've seen Paul's interaction with the church leadership, willing to go along. And here Paul was just about being beaten outside the city. And I don't think that would have ended well for him, uh, had they not stepped in, and he's asking to go back and talk to the crowd. And we have his speech here. Brothers, an esteemed father. Look at, listen to how he refers to these people, by how he builds them up. This is the mob crowd. So earlier on in the book of Acts, if you remember correctly, early on, we hear about the church, uh, 
serving one another and teaching daily and taking communion daily and all these things. Like people are selling their possessions to, to give to those in need. And one of the phrases that comes up is how much uh, popularity, the good esteem of the crowd, of the people, they enjoyed. That's not the case anymore. So now we have the character of the crowd, the mob. We've had the church leaders. Now we have the mob. How does Paul deal with them? How does he go about with this conflict? I love this. Brothers and esteemed fathers. Listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. So that would have been Hebrew or Aramaic. Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, who's a famous uh, rabbi. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from here to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. So this is how he begins his speech. And what's interesting to me is that now in the safety of the Roman tribune, he's still building up this crowd. He's still drawing on the connection that they have, not the differences that they have. Again, at this point, I'm going to start using my limited uh, uh, oh, what do you call it? Um, sign language ability with this crowd. I don't know much sign language, but it's not pleasant. The one thing I know how to do with sign language is not good. and and, and this is a this is a point where it's like I want to distance myself from them. And Paul is just trying to build a connection. And he's building, he's showing all these connections that they, that they have with one another. Um, we were educated. I was educated here. I studied under this person. I was zealous, just like all of you. All of you. And this sort of humble, flying under the radar approach, trying to build rapport. He's trying to see what do they need. What do they need from me? He's asking the church leaders, what do they need from me? The mob, what do they need from me? I can be that for them. And go to meet them. He goes on to talk about his conversion, okay, which we've already covered in Acts chapter 9. That's why I cut it out here. We already have a lot to read. At the end, he talks about this vision that he's in the temple, he's praying. Jesus comes to him and says, get out of the city. And he's like, no, I don't want to get out of this. He's like, they're not going to accept your message. You need to go to the Gentiles. He shares that story with them. And at that point, talking about the non-Jewish people, by the way, this is a country that is occupied by the Roman Empire, pagans. They're not happy to hear about any sort of God working with non-Jewish people at all. They don't want to hear that. 
And when he gets into the speech, they're ready to throttle him again. And he gets pulled inside. But again, Paul's wondering, what do they need? What do I need to do to reach this group? To reach this group, to that group, this group, the other group. And now we have a third group. We have the tribune here. The commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't been tried? He leads with a question, not a demand, a question. When the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, what are you doing? This man's a Roman citizen. The commander went over and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered, and it cost me a lot. (laughs) Paul answered, but I'm a citizen by birth. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen. And the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. Okay. Now, if you can read this carefully, they're concerned. The Romans are concerned because they're afraid of getting in trouble. (laughs) They're not concerned about Paul. The reason they stop has nothing to do with a human life, with finding the truth, It has to do with saving their job. And Paul leads with questions, not demands. So in all of these cases, I don't know how to put it, except that Paul tends to fly under the radar. (laughs) He's, He's not making a big stink about anything. The church leadership, for heaven's sake, has this ridiculous plan If you've been in church long enough, you've probably seen enough ridiculous plans. I'm sure we've had plenty of ridiculous plans. But he goes along with it. The crowd wants to kill him. And he wants to go back and try to draw some sort of connection with them. The tribune wants to beat him. But instead of demands for justice, he asks questions. So he, with the church leaders, he accepts advice of James and the elders despite a great risk to himself. Um, He's ready to do whatever it takes to dispel the rumors. With the mob, even after being dragged off, he wants to share his story. And on the basis of this connection, they listen until he speaks of this vision that Jesus has in the temple. He does not attack their culture. He doesn't attack their traditions. He does not tell them to abandon these traditions, but affirms and invites them to Jesus. And so as I push myself away from the table, the social media table, I don't see a lot of people inviting people towards Jesus. What I see is a lot of yelling, a lot of attacking of traditions, a lot of attacking of cultures, a lot of attacking of points of view, Attack, 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 attack. And I, we've seen it in the church as well. Instead of building up, taking the humble approach to build up. 
And I wonder if we see so much of that. We certainly, you know, see it a lot outside of the church. You know, why is that? And I think it's because we don't have the security we feel like we need to defend. We feel like we need to, you know, mark our territory and dig our heels in because maybe that foundation doesn't feel very solid. What's our foundation in? What is, Jesus talks about that parable, right? It's two men. One builds it on a rock. The other builds it on sand. The house looks the same. What's different is underneath. Paul does not preach Jesus by telling them that they are worthless, that they are less than pagans, that their culture and traditions are from Satan. The message is one of love and affirmation, even for those who are persecuting him. The tribune, when facing the authorities, he's asking questions, not making threats. In each situation, with the church, with the mob, with the tribune, he asserts what he has in common with them and tries to build upon that. All things to all people. That flies in the face of what we hear daily in our country, in our world. What we hear is your truth, <laughs> your reality. Assert that. Protect that. Find that. But with Paul, he talks about becoming all things to all people. And with Jesus, he becomes all things to all people. Jesus is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah as being a lamb led to the slaughter. A bogus trial, not demanding justice, but going through with it. Now, we got to be careful. You know, you pull this thread about just giving over. I mean, we're not saying that if you're in an abusive relationship, you just kind of give over to that. There are times where we need to when things are in a bad shape, you need to take care of yourself and we need to take care of one another. But I'm talking about a general sort of feeling, a general sort of spirituality of America and Christians in America. And if we're not careful, we're going to start adopting all the cues. But becoming all things to all people is not one of the things I, it's not a meme I see on Facebook, ever. <laughs> but the bigger question is how can he do that? How does Jesus live that way? How does Paul live that way? How does Paul look at the needs of the church, look at the needs of the crowd, look at the needs of the Roman tribune and able to give what they need in order so that the message of God can be heard? And it's that security that we have in the love of Jesus. Because once we're secure there, we're able to give ourselves to the needs of the other person. It's about surrender. About surrender. So here's a question, a couple questions. Where have you been yelling lately? And I don't mean necessarily literally yelling, but in your mind, seething or anger or pushing back. Where are you yelling lately? Where are you violently pushing back? 
Where are we making demands? Where are we trying to manage the optics? And can we be a people that instead of yelling about our differences, we find that unity where we're together quietly? Instead of screaming for justice, which is very, justice is very much needed in the world we live in, can we just simply give it generously to those who need it? And perhaps to those who don't deserve it. Can we not only share, if we're sharing, then we're privileged in some sense. Jesus says, you know, if you have two coats, give one away. Speaking to people who are privileged to have two. Can we not only share with those in need, but pray for those who persecute us? Didn't Jesus teach that? Can we ask questions and find common ground instead of making demands? When we face a mob sort of mentality, maybe in the political arena these days, find a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood there. Jesus offers us a hope of salvation. And it's not a far-off, distant hope. It is, it is that, but it's more than that. It's not a far-off, distant hope only where we just kind of slog it out and wait it out until we get there. It's a hope that's very real and very concrete, and it's very here and now. But oftentimes it flies in the face of what we hear so much in our news feeds about demands and yelling, and managing optics, and all that sort of thing. It's a way that is secure in the love of Christ and moves forward to meet people and the needs, find the, discover the needs that they have. Um, and this will produce a healing change in our current and broken world. Right? This is a story of the prodigal son sort of secure love that the father has that can offer it both to the older son and the younger son. The good Samaritan who feels secure enough to be able to go out of his way and help someone. Right. So may we be a people that develops so much security in that love. And Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. I think we can read this and see Paul's actions don't really seem like salvation. <laughs> well, we're listening to the wrong person then. Because what's happening, and this is what Luke is doing, is that we are seeing what a disciple looks like. We are seeing what someone who follows Jesus looks like. And this is what we should look like. And by the end of the book, the message has reached the most powerful empire that the world has ever seen. That's powerful, but it flies under the radar and it doesn't look powerful at first glance. All right. Okay, let's stand and pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. I pray that we would develop such a deep love 
um, for you, that we would get a clear sense of your love for us. I pray that we would look first to you for that love. That if there's anyone here who doesn't know that love, I pray that they would be able to hear and see clearly this morning that this is a love that will change the world. It's a love that is risky. It is a love that is dangerous. It is a love that will provide the kind of security that we so deeply want and desire and need and that the world so deeply desires and wants and needs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.